Well, welcome again. Um, <clears throat> the difficult sayings of Jesus. Even Jesus had a little bit of trouble communicating um, and being fully understood. You know, communication is not an automatic thing, is it? I mean, I have been um, a preacher communicator for almost 40 years, and I can't tell you how many times I walk away thinking, man, I really blew it that day. Nobody understood a word that I happened to say. Thank you for not saying amen. I appreciate that. Teenagers, do you uh, ever struggle at times with communicating with your parents? Don't answer that question, you know, if they're sitting with you in the living room. Um, wives, do you ever feel like when you talk to your husbands that you're speaking a foreign language to them, right? Communication, I mean, it, it just isn't automatic. Now, my wife and I, Patty, we've been over the last year or so enjoying several different British TV shows. Um, you know, that's the impact of COVID is you sit there and you watch all kinds of TV, right? And one of the things that's true about British TV shows is I always have to have closed captioning on because I hardly can understand what it is they're saying. And even when I have closed captioning on, oftentimes I can't understand what they're saying still. It just doesn't make sense to me. So I found some of those phrases that British people use that I don't really understand. Maybe you can help me understand. The first one is, I'll give you a bell. Do you know what that means? I'll give you a bell. What? A call, that's right. Some of you have some British blood in you or something. I don't know. Is that, that's not an insult, is it, Bob, to say that right? Okay. Uh, totally chuffed. Anybody know what that means? You're totally chuffed. It means you're pleased, you're thrilled. All right? That's pants. That's pants. What is that one? Anybody know? Something is nonsense. Nonsense. How about this one? Pull a blinder. Pull a blinder. You pulled a blinder. Means you did something skillful or excellent. How about this one? You spend a penny. Anybody know what that means? You spend a penny? You need to use the restroom. <laughs> there you go. Handy when you go to Britain. Now, I know this one has an answer. How about this? Bob's your uncle. Bob's your uncle. There you go. Everything's good. Everything's all right. And Bob's not anybody's uncle in here. You know, it's, it's this whole thing of another language, you know, maybe it's a different culture, but let's just face it, when we use our mouth, when we open our mouth, sometimes what comes out doesn't really make a lot of sense because communication is not automatic. Playing jazz. Playing jazz. Smoothie. Making smoothie. Calendar. No meetings today. Remember, dentist at 9.30. Fire off. Fire off. Open door. Door open. And we're going to do one more. Fire Open door. Wrong voice command. Open door. Wrong voice command. Open. Open door. Repeat that. Open door. I didn't understand that. Hey, open door! Play on the floor. Sick on the floor. It's on the floor. Open the door! Open the door! Communication is not automatic. So I, I got to make a confession to you. You know, I've been studying the Bible for a long time, and on a regular basis, I come across passages of Scripture, and I read them, and I think, what on earth is that supposed to mean? 
I mean, there are just times where I'm reading through, you know, particularly the Old Testament and some of the prophets or even the book of Revelation, but even the words of Jesus, the Gospel of Luke, there have been some times where I have just kind of scratched my head and thought, what, what is it that Jesus is saying here? And so that's a part of the reason why we're doing a brand new series today called The Difficult Sayings of Jesus. Because my desire is for all of us to have this desire to be in God's Word and read God's Word and to know God's Word. But I also know that it can become discouraging at times when you read God's Word and you realize, you know what, I don't, I don't understand what this is saying. And at times you can feel all alone in that, like, you know, I just must not be very smart or I must not be very spiritual. I want you to know and understand that anyone who reads the Bible has trouble understanding parts of God's Word. And so that's what I want us to do, to do it, learn about digging into some of the more difficult phrases and sayings of Jesus. Sometimes they're more difficult, right? Because, well, it's a different culture and a different setting. We'll discover that a little bit today. Sometimes it's difficult because our minds aren't really open to it. Sometimes it's difficult because maybe we're using the wrong translation, but together I think we can dig in. And again, we're going through the Gospel of Luke this year. We're digging in and trying to, in essence, sit at the feet of Jesus and to know and understand what Jesus wants us to do in our lives, because we know that the, one of the key ways for us to be able to grow in our relationship with Christ is to know Him better, to develop this intimate relationship with Him better. And that comes as we read and dig into and learn more and more about Jesus Christ. And so one of those very confusing statements we encounter today, and this is Luke chapter 5 and verse 39. Here's an example of that. Jesus says, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. It's like, what? Are we supposed to like have a winery now as a part of our business as a church? You know, of course, drinking old wine is better than new. Is that okay for me to admit that? You know, I mean, what, what on earth is Jesus saying here? What is Jesus getting after? And as you look at a passage and others like that, you know, you, you begin to recognize, you know, Jesus was good at using common everyday things that he saw right in front of him or were in this particular setting, and he used them to help us understand some pretty significant spiritual truths. And today is no exception to that. One of the things that Jesus is doing in this passage is he's talking to, we'll call them the old guard. He's talking to the Religious leaders, the Pharisees, we'll talk a, a minute down the road about them, but he's talking to them about the fact that change is coming. Something new is coming. And not all of them are going to be ready for that. And so for you and I who at times you know, wrestle with this whole thing about change and about God working in our life and how we relate to God. Here's, here's where we're going today. Here's our key today, and that is spiritual practices are not what makes us spiritual. Okay? Check in the box. I went to church. You know, I read my Bible. I prayed. I was nice to the preacher today. Check in the box. Spiritual practices, they're not what makes us spiritual. What God is interested in is not on the external things, the rituals, the things that we go through, but on what happens within our heart. He wants to see that kind of deep radical change in our heart. He wants to see us relate to Him in a new way, not in the old way, 
of ritual and tradition and rules and laws. And so together today, we're going to look at this passage and we're going to look and see what Jesus wants from you and from me. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 5. Starting in verse 33, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles. There's Bibles in the seat in front of you. you use your phone or your tablet. Those online, make sure you follow along. There's a, a tab there that says Bible if you want to use that. But here's Jesus speaking beginning in verse 33. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. And he told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the old will not match, or the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Now, Jesus faced a lot of opposition while he was on the earth. Um, it tended to come from this group, the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, they were... Um, a sect of Judaism that basically they were zealous for following the law and following God. In fact, their desire, which was a, I think started as a very good desire, was to follow God as perfectly as they could. But in their, you know, zealous nature, what they also did was come up with all these other hundreds of rules to help you to know how to follow God's law. And it just became this really a symbol for them of just look how absolutely spiritual I am. And so here is in Luke 5, the first encounter, at least in Luke, of kind of this opposition to Jesus Christ. And the setting is Jesus is at a banquet. See, Matthew, or he's also called Levi here in this, Jesus has just called him to follow him. Nobody wanted somebody like Matthew to follow them because Matthew was a tax collector. Everybody hated Matthew. And for Matthew to hear Jesus say, I want you to come follow me, I mean, that would have been just astonishing to him. And so what does Matthew do in his celebration? He throws a big banquet at his house so that all of his friends can meet Jesus as well, which also speaks to you and I about do we desire to share the love of Jesus and what he's done for us you know, in their hearts and their lives. But that's a whole different story. But that's Matthew. He's so excited. The problem is his friends would be also tax collectors and sinners, at least in the definition by the Pharisees. We talked about that last week. You know, the people you don't want to hang around with, but here's Jesus hanging around with them. Jesus is partying with them. He's celebrating. He's laughing with them. He is showing them the love the Father has even for them. And so, here we have the Pharisees, and they make this observation back in verse 33. They said to him, so it's the Pharisees saying to Jesus, verse 33, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. So what was going on here? Well, they used John's disciples to say, well, they fast and pray, our disciples, of course, fast and pray. And they're saying, 
basically to Jesus, you guys aren't observing the proper way to make God happy. You're not following the rules. You're not following the guidelines. I mean, you must not be a very good teacher if your disciples don't do the proper fasting like all the rest of us spiritual giants. Now, what's the big deal about fasting? All right, fasting is going without food, spiritual fasting at least, is going without food for the purpose of kind of honoring God. Uh, fasting, you fast maybe sometimes for repentance or penance, but you also fast as a way to show God how serious you are. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a lot of different times you fasted, um, celebrations, festivals, but it also had to do with repentance, sometimes sacrifices. Now, the Pharisees had taken this whole idea of fasting, and they had elevated it. I mean, it was like they fasted two times a week, and they spent their time. They saw fasting, most of Judaism did, as this sign of piety. I am pious because I fast. And what happens here in this particular setting is they're holding up their spirituality, their fasting as a sign of just how deeply spiritual they are. And then they look at Jesus and what's wrong with your disciples? They're not doing that kind of fasting. They must not be very spiritual. And so what does Jesus do? How does Jesus respond to them? I'm always impressed with how Jesus responds to those kind of personal attacks. He turns a personal attack into a lesson a way to teach them something important, something crucial, something that is valuable. And what he's teaching them to a group of guys that are going to have a really hard time learning this lesson, it is simply this, that change is coming. God's going to be doing something very, very different. And he moves from their shallow criticism to what God is going to be doing in the present and in the future. So look what he says in verse 34. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and in those days they will fast. So what's he do? He gives them the example of a wedding. It's a celebration, right? Weddings have, it's just this opportunity to to celebrate. I'm going to be doing a wedding for a young couple here next month, and it's a time of celebration, right? It's also very stressful, especially for the you know, parents and all that, but it's a celebration. It's a party. It's a time to have fun. In fact, this morning I got asked if I might do a wedding for somebody else. It's a celebration. It's a joyful kind of time and a joyful kind of experience. There shouldn't be crying at weddings, but sometimes there's crying at weddings. I cried at my kids' weddings, you know. Um, so here's an, a, a, a scene from my daughter's wedding, and the silence isn't because the volume is down. The silence is because I can't sp- say anything. My daughter Christy came to the rescue. I don't know if you saw her, but she handed me a Kleenex right in the middle of that. It broke the ice. I was able to keep going. You know, I mean, you're supposed to celebrate at weddings. Sometimes it's kind of hard, you know, as the parent of that particular wedding. But Jesus uses this wedding uh, example here 
Because the Pharisees knew that the wedding example was oftentimes a symbol or a representative of God's relationship with his people. It was, it was this intimate relationship that he wanted to have. Um, in the Old Testament, it speaks a lot about that. First of all, to Israel. Um, Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 and 6. Isaiah says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says the Lord God. In other words, he, he wanted that intimate relationship. But then he also speaks, and kind of hints there, but of a future event. This is Isaiah 62. No longer will they call you deserted, or, your, or name your land desolate, for, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And he's speaking not only of, in one passage, of his relationship with Israel, but of a future bride that will come. And so when Jesus uses the example of the wedding, of the bridegroom, calling himself the bridegroom, those Pharisees knew exactly what he was referring to, that the wedding has come, that the bridegroom is here, that God is doing something new. And Jesus is saying, you know, fast and mourn at a wedding, you celebrate together, you rejoice together. And the reason, Jesus was saying, is that deliverance is here. You don't have to do penance because salvation is here. It's time to celebrate. But it is interesting that he makes kind of a veiled reference to his death there. Look again at verse 35. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and they will fast. Now, they didn't know it then. They didn't understand his disciples of what he meant at that particular point. But, you know, when Luke writes this letter to Theophilus and to many of the other Gentile Christians, as they read it, they realize, oh, that's what Jesus was talking about, his crucifixion, his death, his sacrifice to make this wedding possible. But again, Jesus isn't detoured by their attack on fasting because he's not talking about fasting here. What Jesus is doing is talking about God's doing something new. A change is coming. It's a new era. It's a new dispensation. A new covenant is coming. God's going to be working in a whole new ways. And he was really speaking to the Pharisees to say, you need to be ready. You need to get your mind ready because of what God is doing in our midst. And so he gives us three different pictures to describe the time that Jesus is bringing here. The first picture is he says, the time Jesus brings is like a piece of cloth. Look at verse 36. He told them this parable, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one, otherwise they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. In other words, you don't have a garment, your favorite shirt, has a tear in it, right? You don't cut that tear out and then take a brand new garment, cut that out and sew it over that because what happens when you wash it? It will shrink and then it will tear and it will ruin that particular garment. Jesus is saying, you don't take the new that I'm bringing and just fit it over the old. It doesn't work that way. 
The second picture he uses is of Jesus' time brings, comes as like new wineskins. Verse 37, he says, And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And so they would take the height of an animal and they would sow it, and then they would put new wine into that new hide. Why would they do that? It's because wine ferments, right? And so it has the ability to expand. But you don't take new wine and pour it into old wine skins that are used up because what happens? As it ferments, it'll rip that out. Jesus is again saying, you don't take the new, the change that God is bringing, and you can't mix it with the old. And then one other picture, he says, the time Jesus brings is going to be real change. Verse 39, here's that verse again. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. It's almost a sarcastic statement. It's really kind of a warning. What he's saying is, time is going to become very different. Change is happening. And some people just don't want to change. And it was, in a, in a sense, a, a kind of a statement to these guys, but it was also a warning to these guys because some of them wouldn't want to change. Now, I, I have a hard time imagining what it must have been like for a Jew. So take your age right now and imagine that your whole life has been spent in the temple learning the truth of the Old Testament, memorizing that, all of the practices of worship, of sacrificing, you know, of your giving, of the celebration. I mean, you, you and your family, that was your life. You spent your entire life as a Jew, and suddenly Jesus comes along and says life is different. That would be so hard to change, right? It would take something um, amazing, to cause you to want to make that particular change in your life. And Jesus is really teaching us what are we supposed to do with the new and the old. And he's saying they don't mix together. You can't take the way of grace that Jesus Christ is bringing and somehow try to patch it over the old way of law and rules and regulations. See, this is one of the reasons why we don't practice the Old Testament. We don't follow the Ten Commandments. We don't follow the rules. That's why when you come to church, you don't bring a live animal, and uh, I hand you a knife, and you slit its throat up here in the front. That's why we don't, we don't follow the Old Testament practices. We don't follow the Old Testament celebrations. We don't follow those rules and regulations. They give us great guidance, they teach us so much. We need to be studying the Old Testament and learning about God and how He works and how He brought the Messiah into our lives. But Jesus is saying, look, you cannot mix the two together. In fact, in speaking with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, Jesus said this, Yet a time is coming and has now come. Notice that, and has now come. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. He had been talking to her about the fact that as Samaritans, they worship on a mountain. The Jews worship in Jerusalem, but a time is coming when none of that's going to happen. 
when it's going to radically change. And some of them would not be ready for that change. And Jesus is not condemning the Old Testament. He's not saying the Old Testament is worthless. But what he's saying is you cannot take the new and somehow try to patch it over the old. He is not a reformer of Judaism. He He has come to bring something brand new. And what you and I need to learn is that The spiritual practices, whatever they happen to be in our lives, you know, whether they're tied to the old way or some new way, Jesus isn't interested in what happens on the outside except that it impacts us on the inside. And if we tend to hold up our spiritual practices as, well, look how spiritual I am, you know, we're in trouble. I think that this speaks to the traditions and customs of the modern church today, right? There's a lot of changes have taken place since I started in ministry back in 1981. I mean, you know, we used to have hymnals. I wore a suit and a tie to church. I mean, you know, we had an organ, we had a piano, we had a communion table right up here in the front with communion on it. I mean, Sunday school, all kinds of things that when I started in ministry that have radically changed. And those changes sometimes have been so very difficult. I mean, our instinct is to cling to change for most people, right? But it's about the message of Jesus Christ. So I have a a basket full of interesting items that store data. So this is a cassette tape, but I actually uh, used one of these to store data from my computer on my VIC-20 and my data set recorder there. Then it changed to, anybody know what this is? Yeah, a five and a quarter inch floppy disk, double-sided, double density, you know, you have to know all those kind of terms. Then we changed to also a floppy disk, but it was right, the three and a half, then we went to... CDs, DVDs, recordable ones, you know, and the big massive hard drives, and then the small SSD drives, and now we got what these micro cards and, you know, zip drives and all that kind of stuff. What's interesting through the years is how the medium for storing that data has changed. Changed with technology, changed with what our need is, but the message, the data stored on it, is still the same. And as a church, you know, we have to continually be willing to say, how do we get the message across to people? I mean, this last year has been insane, this whole um, streaming online. Hi again to everybody who's streaming online. And I'm really thankful that you guys are with us. But that's just such a challenging thing for me. And yet it's a great thing for us. Because You know, if it hadn't been for COVID, it may have been a while because we weren't doing any kind of streaming like that. To be able to reach people in such a new and unique way, but it requires change. And so we have to ask the question, are traditions and practices becoming more important than the message to us? I think it also speaks to the personal way that you and I connect with God. Again, you got this is, we all have to wrestle with this personally but are my spiritual practices, do I do them because I think that checks a box and God's good with me and happy with me now? I mean, spiritual practices are great. Jesus isn't condemning fasting here. 
But what he's saying is be careful that you allow your spiritual practices to be the sign. Oh, look how spiritual I am. I showed up church today, right? I got online there. I mean, you could have watched the Olympics. You watched us today, right? I mean, I chose to do that. And those are great things. I mean, even right now, what are we asking you to do? We're asking you to read through the Gospel of Luke. That's a spiritual practice. It doesn't show that you're more spiritual than somebody else, but it's a great opportunity to be able to let God work in your heart and your life. But if you use it to say, oh, good, God's happy with me, then you've missed the point. What does God desire from each and every one of us? He wants a humble heart that has a desperate need for him that realizes how important God is, how critical that I have this relationship with Jesus Christ. I think it's also a warning when we find ourselves approaching God too dismissively, I guess I'll say, too lightly. And, and, and that can happen because of the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. Do you know that you don't have to show up to church or even stream online, and you could still go to heaven? I mean, there's no command that condemns that in us, right? And so it's easy for me to be able to say, well, I can worship God just as easily in the woods. That's a great place to worship God, right? I mean, to enjoy God's presence there. But if I use that as an excuse for not honoring God, what's, I'm, I'm dishonoring God's request to gather with His people, to encourage, to worship, to honor Him, to grow and to learn together from one another. I mean, if we say God doesn't care, we have missed the point. I don't need to be a part of a church to be a Christian, you know? I don't have to join a church or go be a part of a church to be a Christian, And, and maybe that's true. But think about the analogy of the wedding that Jesus uses. The church is the bride. So if I say, well, I, don't want, I, I want to be a Christian, but I want to be a part of the church, what am I saying? I'm saying, Jesus, your bride is just ugly. I don't want to have anything to do with your bride because she is just ugly. I mean, imagine that kind of thinking that we would have. I mean, we need that family. We need one another in the church. You know, it also, I think, kind of speaks to the endless search that some people struggle with for the perfect church. You know, I want to find a church where I can have my needs met and my kids can be able to have great opportunities. And, I mean, the list is endless. And I, I think you have to think that through and wrestle with that. But you know what it really speaks to? Is the consumer mentality that we have as Christians today and the self-centered way that we approach our relationship with God. We need God more than anything else in our lives. Is God the priority of my life? And if He is, then pour everything that I have into building that intimate relationship with Him. Whatever practice I need or don't need. But make sure that it honors God. Make sure that it's what God wants from our life. Not as an indicator that I'm spiritual, but as a pathway to intimacy with God and my relationship with Him. Stop trying to use God as your patch over the life that you're struggling with. Stop trying to make God fit into your wineskin or mine wineskin. He is the Lord God Almighty. 
He deserves our praise and our honor, the very best that we have with every single part of our life. We want to honor and worship Him.